My dad and I met up in Kathmandu, and the next morning we took a tiny twin-engine prop plane to a village called Lukla. It's about halfway up the 100-mile trail to the Everest base camp. We're at about, landed at about 9,000 feet. It's about 200 Sherpas here waiting behind the barbed wire fence hoping to get work carrying people's bags up. But there's a ton of tourists and trekkers. 500 tourists fly in here every day now. When my dad first did this hike, there weren't really any other trekkers, just expedition groups trying to summit Everest. Forty years ago, uh, you didn't know if a plane was coming. There was no radio communication. You would hear the plane coming, the sound of the engine, and then you would all of a sudden hear the sound of the engine fade away, meaning that the plane had to go back to Kathmandu because it couldn't land in Lukla, and you had no idea when another plane on another day would be coming. We started walking, mostly uphill, through villages, and past yak trains. My dad walks slowly with a little wooden cane. He carries a tiny leather satchel instead of a backpack, and he's constantly clearing his throat because he has a damaged esophagus. He takes a big hike almost every year, but when he asked me to walk the Everest Trail with him, he said, I think it may be our last chance. We stop in stone guest houses where Sherpas teach trekkers folk songs. And we order lentils and potatoes and fried bread. This was not the scene when my dad first came here. And, and in fact, there were no places to stay either. So uh, they, they did have a few tents. And I happened to run into the Argentinian Everest expedition, which had failed in its attempt to climb Mount Everest. This year, uh, of course, there are many, many, many more Western tourists on the Everest trek. As we climb higher towards our goal, the mountainside monastery, the weather is getting worse. It's cloudy and foggy and cold. My dad's not feeling well, and we can't see any mountains. It's hard to pretend we're not disappointed as we climb through the fog. We arrive at the monastery after dark, drink some hot lemon tea, and hope in the morning the clouds will clear. It's 6 a.m. Tengboshe Monastery. It's hard to tell, but it looks like it's still cloudy. We get no views. I climb out of the sleeping bag. It's freezing. And walk up to the monastery. The monks will be praying, trying to meditate on what lesson I'm supposed to learn here. I'm sure it's supposed to be something about the journey. Okay, Dad, what do you do when you fly 26 hours? Hike six days for a view of Mount Everest and you get there and it's fogged in. It's a disappointment, but the journey is still unlike any other journey on the earth and and sometimes there's a reward at the end of the journey and sometimes it's just the journey. And then, as we sat on that ridge, coming to terms with missing out on our Everest, the clouds began to break apart. Whoa! Look at those! Oh, it's gorgeous! 
What happened? The gods have smiled upon us. <laughs> the veil lifted and the mountains are appearing and peeking through and, and it's absolutely thrilling and gorgeous. Do you think that's because you passed the test and the mountain gods knew you got it? No. <laughs> Yes, friends, remember, if you are grateful for your father, the clouds would part for you as well. Thanks again to Anna Sussman and her father, Alan Sussman, for sharing their story with us. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.